we come to celebrate this great gift of salvation we've been given. And as we come around the Lord's table, I want to draw your attention to a question that the Lord asked during his earthly ministry. It was at a time in his ministry recorded for us in Matthew's gospel when, when he had said, look, if you, if you want to have an eternity with God, if you want to maintain your real life, the substance of life, the eternal things, then you're going to have to let go of this life and your clutch on this life. You're going to have to let go of your grip on wanting this reality and resting in this reality. And so he said it like this, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. It was a play on language to say that very thing. Let go of what you're trying to preserve here or what you're trying to hold on to here and produce here, which you think is going to have an impact there. Let go of all that. Stop resting in all that, that you might gain what is really the true substance, that which God alone gives. And when he'd finished that discussion, he made this statement recorded in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? In that question, Jesus sort of unfolds for us some realities that every human being must deal with. The first implication or or long-term reality that Jesus unfolds in that question is this, that the soul is worth infinitely more than possessing the entire world itself. One human soul is worth more, infinitely more, than if you possessed the entire world for yourself. Secondly, he is is laying forth the implication that a soul can be forfeited. He uses the word gain. What does a prophet a man if if he... gains the world and forfeits his soul. Forfeit could be a synonym for loss. You can lose your soul over and against gaining what is temporal here and now. So you can forfeit your soul in whatever sense Jesus meant it here. But there's even a third implication, and it is this. When Jesus asked that question, he was unfolding the reality that the loss of your soul must be of an unimaginable horror if its loss in the afterlife, by comparison, is far worse than possessing the entire world. You might think of Solomon who, in his power and his kingdom, was able to use his resources and his authority and his influence to try everything the world had to offer so that he might see if there was meaning in any of it. And he found none of it meaningful ultimately to who God has made human beings to to be in their existence. Solomon found it nothing but, as he says, vanity or chasing wind. And you might think of Solomon's ability to do that, but Jesus takes it one step further and says, look, if you gained the whole world, possessed the whole world, owned it all, owned the globe, owned the universe, it was yours at your disposal, temporal life possessed by you and you alone to do with it whatever you wanted, Even that, by comparison, is nothing, Jesus says, to the unimaginable horror if you were to lose your soul in the afterlife. 
The soul is worth infinitely more than possessing the entire world. A soul indeed can be forfeited. It can be lost. And the loss of the soul is of an unspeakable horror by comparison. And in fact, losing your soul is a reality so terrifying that Scripture uses a variety of ways to spell out this horrific dimension, this reality of an eternal soul being forfeited or lost. It is unmistakable in Scripture when it is described. This is why when we were studying Luke 12, Jesus had made the statement, do not fear those who can merely kill the body here and now and can't do anything else to you. They can't reach through the grave, through the barrier, and do anything to your eternal soul. It is a terrifying thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that's terrifying. I think today about our culture and how we've lost the idea that the afterlife, you're going to face a judgment. It's interesting that as a culture sort of denies hell, denies the reality of eternal punishment, denies that there's an afterlife where there will be accountability, more and more the next generation gets more death-defying, don't they? I mean, go on YouTube and watch it. It's not as though someone is taking a calculated risk all the time with some skill and they participate in some extreme sport and with skill they're able to do that and we all marvel at such things. No, 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 no. There, there's a whole generation that is for casual purposes on a Saturday taking their bike to some ledge on a skyscraper and defying the natural laws. Not knowing, of course, the reality of what Jesus said. What does it profit a human being who might be able to go viral with some video and yet lose your soul in a moment and face the living God. You say, why do people do that? Because the reality is that as generations are growing up, we're not understanding the implications of what Jesus was saying about the soul and the ruin of the soul. It's far worse. We are producing a generation that is saying, eat, drink, be merry, live it up. There's no accountability. Nothing's coming. And yet God said, yes, there is, and you must fear him whom after he has taken your physical life, he can destroy your soul in eternity, a Christless eternity, a godless eternity, Some, something apart from God, utterly and forever. To use Jesus' language, he's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical death is, is lost on this generation. To them, it's just some sort of, oh, you, you transition out of this into whatever else is next. Who cares? But physical death itself is the outward proof of what God said when sin entered the universe. When the first sin occurred, you shall surely die. Of course, Adam didn't physically expire on the spot, but corruption was in the system, and that corruption began to spread, and it brought physical weakness and eventual death to everyone, and God says, across the barrier, eternal separation from him, utterly and forever. And the scriptures are clear on this. The scriptures teach it, and, and, and most orthodox declarations of faith will say the same things in some measure. The scriptures teach that souls of unsaved, when they die, they're kept under punishment until what's called the second resurrection, Luke 16 and Revelation 20. 
And the scriptures teach that the soul and resurrection body, which they will have when the soul is united with their resurrection body, it is a body fashioned unto judgment. Those two will be united, John 5 says, when Jesus' voice speaks and calls them out of the grave. Their soul, which is in torment and awaiting it, will be united with a body fashioned for judgment, and they will then head off into their eternal punishment. In Revelation 20, they they shall then appear at the great white throne of judgment and will be cast then into that place, which the Bible describes as a lake of fire. And the scriptures teach, both from the prophets, Daniel 12, verse 2, and Jesus' own discourse in Matthew 25, later in the Apostle Paul's words to the Thessalonians, the Bibles teach that those who reject God will be cut off from the life of God forever. Cut off. And you know, it's, it's just not scant material in the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament talked about the grave, and it used terms that sometimes could be used of just the place where people go. You, you bury them, and they're in the grave. That's what we talk about when we talk about where we put their body to rest. But their soul is alive, and it is very much where God has it based upon whether they believed him and knew him or rejected him. And the scriptures are clear about that, that even the, term, the Old Testament term for the grave can be used as a place that is tormenting. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, the fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. There's the word for grave, but it is associated with God's wrath. Job 10, Sheol is a place of darkness. Job 14, those in the grave don't know what's taking place on the earth. Job 21, it's a falsehood to believe that you'll escape it if you reject God. That's a falsehood. That's a lie from the pit. You come over into the New Testament, and you you got to know that Jesus talked about the clarity of being lost and having your soul lost more in terms of defining judgment than any of the other New Testament writers. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, dealt with this impending doom that was coming. New Testament synonym for the grave was the term you might see in your English Bible, Hades. Sometimes you see it there. It's sometimes called the grave or hell or the depth. And then there were two other terms used that spoke of torment. One of them Jesus used most often, and it was the word Gehenna. Sometimes we, we see that in our English Bible, but it was a reference to the valley in and around Jerusalem where they would burn all their trash and it was the Valley of Hinnom, and that's where they put all their trash, and that's where it burned, and it would be like you lighting a fire, and you see all those coals down there, and the smoke's ever rising. That's where all the trash was burned in the nation, and it was constant smoke, and it was constant heat, and constant coals, and constant burning. That was used to describe, by analogy, what was coming after the grave for those that reject God. Jesus used that as the analogy. Jesus refers to hell as outer darkness, constant weeping, constant grinding and gnashing of your teeth, unending darkness, unending agony, agony of heart, agony of mind, agony of soul, and an unending fire of some kind that causes the unrelenting pain and sensation of being burned. This is Jesus' description. Yes, Jesus, our Savior, he warned of this. And he said the flame would never be quenched, Mark 9. There would never be an end to the tormenting. 
It, it describes some sort of excruciating and repulsive uh, element to it that just kind of eats at every person there. Perhaps maybe even speaking of the conscience in its piercing clarity over the way you rejected God. Flaming fire, God takes vengeance on them that know not God, 2 Thessalonians 1. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, Revelation 14.10. The beast and the false prophet who wrought miracles before him with which they deceived the nations and made everyone receive the mark of the beast. These are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, Revelation 19.20. Sometimes you hear the word brimstone and what do you think of? Oh, you think of some militant preacher up there who's, what, what do we say? Hell, fire, and what? Oh, we all know. And we recoil at that. Why? Because the militant version of that, it's almost as if those people hate the lost and, and they can't stand them. And so they rail as though they're speaking down to somebody, hey, we're saved and you're not and we can't wait till you get yours. That's the attitude that comes out and we recoil at that. But listen, fire and hell and brimstone were the words Jesus used. Forget how a human being might use it against others in an unloving way. But if you think that, that we're not in danger, when we have a whole generation that rejects those notions, then, then you have made the mistake of, of being naive because they are rejecting Christ's words themselves. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and the beast and the false prophet are there, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into that same lake of fire. And there are lists of people who are there. These are people who don't repent of lifestyle patterns of these kinds of things which God hates. For the cowardly, he's not talking about someone who's ever afraid of someone else. He's talking about someone who, by the habit of their life, love to protect themselves and hate the idea that they have to allow themselves to be protected by God and preserved by God in eternity. They love this life. They preserve themselves in this life. The cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, or we might say the final death. And is it eternal? Oh, we, we love to think that this is just some sort of temporary kind of thing. Religions make up these temporary places where you go. No. Look, if heaven is eternal, then there's every reason to believe that when hell is spoken of as forever, everlasting, forever and ever, that that's precisely what it means. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, Jesus said in Matthew 25. And the righteous into life eternal. The life of the righteous is everlasting, but then so, so is the punishment of the wicked. The Bible says salvation is eternal, Hebrews 5. Life is eternal, John 6. Redemption is eternal, Hebrews 9. The inheritance of the saints is an eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. The fire of hell is eternal and everlasting, Matthew 18 and Jude 7. The chains of hell that hold you there, Jude 6, they are everlasting. The darkness that envelops those who are there is forever, Jude 13. The torment is forever and ever, Revelation 20, and on the scriptures go. These are just the biblical descriptions of it that warn us. And then there are theological underpinnings, if you think about it, and sometimes we might agree, yes, sinners need 
or deserve punishment, but hell is just too extreme. And, and I have to confess that as a human being who studies the doctrine of hell in Scripture, and if you've ever read the doctrine of hell in Scripture, it, is, it, it causes you to become paralyzed. It is so permanent, so forever, so frightening, so excruciating in the way it hits our senses that it causes you to become paralyzed in your emotions and in your mental state just to study it. So I get that. But we might even ask the question, is hell too extreme, even though sinners may deserve punishment? And the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards took up that question in one of his essays, and he argued this. Jonathan Edwards argued that because God is a being of infinite majesty and glory, infinite greatness, infinite majesty, infinite glory, then he is therefore infinitely honorable. He is infinitely worthy to be honored by everything he creates because he cannot be other than he is. And so he is worthy then of absolute obedience by the moral creatures that he creates. Sin against God then, according to the way that Edwards laid it out theologically, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligation must therefore be, he said, a crime infinitely heinous and deserving of infinite punishment. God is angry with sin and he could justifiably and justly send every unrepentant sinner to hell at any moment, including you and me, doesn't matter. He would be just because anything we've ever done against his infinite majesty and glory, it violates his, his infinite worthiness to be honored by those creatures and therefore it is a crime of infinite obligation and infinite heinous nature. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in this eternal punishment. And so, as one author said, to fathom the horror of sin and the holiness of God, we have, to, we have to come to grips with something. If you want to fathom the horror of sin and the holiness of God, you must kneel then before the cross of Christ. That is where it all comes into clarity. Sin against God is so severe that only the death of the sinless Son of God could atone for it. Not your works, not your guessing, not your wishes, not your hope, not gaining the whole world and having all this power, even if you, made, if you possessed the whole world and made it all religious, if you possessed the whole world and said, we're all going to serve the God of the Bible, even if you forced politically and militarily and socially some standard on the world because you possessed it and owned it all and you owned all people and that's what you did, it would still fall short. All of it. Every act, every human being, every life, everyone's short of God's glory. And if you're short of God's glory, then it is a crime of infinite obligation and it must have an infinite punishment. It must. It's absolutely impossible for him to be other than he is. And so the only way we can understand this dynamic and the horror of it is to, to find another way to think about it. And God gave us the right understanding of it. He gave us the clarity of it when, when he sent his son, his sinless son, to pay for sin on our behalf. 
And you see the reality of that in Mark 15. Just turn there for a moment. Mark 15. This is just going to set our hearts right for coming to the Lord's table. Mark 15, verse 33, when sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the holy, sinless Son of God whom God put on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And he took the guilt of all who will ever believe in God so that they don't enter a Christless eternity. And he placed that guilt on his Son. And so if you want to understand this great struggle and this great corruption that has come to humanity... You must understand that a soul is infinitely worth more than possessing the whole world. You must understand that to defy God is an infinitely more horrible thing because it destroys a soul in eternity forever. And that's infinitely more horrible than losing what you might have gained in possessing the whole world. To lose your soul is everything. Apart from the cross, there is therefore now no forgiveness, no hope for forgiveness or reconciliation. So think of it this way. If you don't believe in Christ and his substitute in his son on the cross, his substitution for your sin on the cross, you only have one other alternative, hell. There isn't going to be some party somewhere, some neutral place where you get to go and do what you did here, only better and, and with more fun and without a bunch of Christians around to rain on your parade. There is no such place. You either believe in Christ or you have only one other alternative. It is hell. And only by understanding hell can we grasp the immensity of God's love then. That's why hell is described in Scripture, and then that's why the wrath of God poured out on the sinless Son of God on behalf of sinners is demonstrated and displayed in Scripture, in human history, and then written for us generations later. Some complain, well, why doesn't a loving God simply have mercy on everyone? Why doesn't he just have mercy on everyone? Well, look, if... If mercy and love were the only reasons Christ died, then ask yourself this question. Why didn't God's greater love for his son overrule his love for us? He's got a greater love for his son. Intimate relationship, fellowship, closeness, sinlessness. They're God. They're in the Godhead. Sweet, self-sufficient, fully fulfilled in and of themselves. They need no one, need nothing. They're full of glory together full of divine love that it never diminished. If mercy and love toward human beings were the only reasons Christ died, then ask yourself the question, why didn't God's greater love for his son overrule the mercy and love that he had toward sinners? 
Or here's another question. Why didn't Jesus' infinite love for his father compelled him to say, no, I'm not going for them? I'm not going. Why would I go do that? I'm fulfilled in my relationship with you. I love you. You're my heavenly father. I I, I realize that you've got mercy and love for them, and, and I have some mercy and love for them too, but my love for you compels me to stay with you. I'm not going down there to do that. They're corrupt. It's righteous to slaughter all of them. Why is it that we think that that God should just have mercy on everyone all the time. I'll tell you why. Because we love our own comfort. People today have no problem with the notion of an all-loving God who behaves more like someone who is like us. We excuse sin. We dote on each other. We comfort one another in our wickedness. We promote wickedness so we feel better about ourselves because of the way we lived in our wickedness. Misery and sinners love company. We like that. We like to gather a crowd in our sin. Why? It just feels better. We're not as guilty. We're sheltered by the crowd. We love a God who behaves like that, and when it comes to sin, he just excuses it like we do. People will talk all day long about God's love and kindness, about his pardon for everyone and every infraction, with a few exceptions, Hitler and others. We No, they don't get any, any pardon. Even people who deny God's existence... Even those people don't mind a religion in the world if it makes people treat one another better. So it's, it's okay. It's tolerable. Oh, you have a religion? Great. No problem. If, as long as your God is sentimental, as long as he excuses the rest of us, as long as he makes you sort of treat each other better in a little moral framework that, that all of us agree as a society might be better for people because you're not killing each other off all the time. Hey, as long as it prevents anarchy, I don't mind a little religious sentiment with a God whose love is sentimental. I don't mind that. Because that's like human beings anyway, uh, and, and we don't mind when people are a little bit self-centered, and we wink at this, and we wink at that. We, we love that. We, we don't have any problem with that kind of God. What, what we recoil at is a God who's perfect, who's righteous, and whose justice is unbending. We don't like that. Why? Because we misread his character through the grid of our own self-worship. We don't see him for who he really is. He's an infinitely righteous God of infinite majesty and infinite holiness, and he must be eternally honored by everything he creates. And so in our minds, if there is a God, he can't be any more righteous than the most religious human beings. And so his mercy must look something like their mercy, which trumps all holy standards. It excuses all sin because, after all, why hold somebody under something when you yourself don't mind a little bit of sin here and there? God looks very much like fallen human beings. And they assume that his love is sentimental, and so, therefore, it's far more important than his justice and than his standards and than his holiness. But the scriptures say that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So there we are. There's God. He's just patiently reaching out with the truth over and over again and with warnings. There is a day coming. It will come. I don't care if you think on a Saturday afternoon you can defy death by by tempting the laws of nature. And if you were to die in that moment, you would know. You will face your creator in that moment. And what Satan had tried to teach you is that no, that's just a religious notion that's a crutch. That is a lie. 
to keep you from the warning. And you see a whole generation doing that today. They're thrill seekers. It's not, they're not seeking a thrill. They are in unbelief. The thrill for them is self-worship. That's the thrill they're seeking. Self-exaltation. They're not seeking the thrill of whatever activity they're doing. They're tempting the laws of nature and eternity because they don't believe there's a day of reckoning or a God through the threshold. They're in unbelief, full-scale unbelief. Only fools do such things. And yet God waits. In his wonderful grace, he waits for that final day which he has fixed and known by his will. It hasn't arrived yet, but its lack of arrival does not indicate that he lacks the power to bring the justice. He will bring it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have the courage to settle accounts. God will settle accounts. He doesn't need to muster up courage. He himself is the very definition of power and strength. The fact that he's waiting does not mean he's not just or that he'll take a bribe or that his justice fluctuates. On the contrary, God warns of that day because he knows the nature of sin. He knows that the soul that has sinned, it shall die. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal death. And ever since the fall, he knows that we will be corrupted and we will not be able to save ourselves. And, and we will plunge our souls into ruin all the while thinking we're just living it up. And we're, if there is something past the grave, it's just a party. It won't be. God knows that sin has power to endlessly keep corrupting and destroying. He knows that sin will never say enough. He knows that without his power and his grace and his revelation, these warnings will come down to humans, but they will never by their own goodness turn to God. He knows that. And he knows what his holiness demands. He knows on the other side of that threshold is a justice so exacting, so permanent, that it will send every rebel into a Christless eternity separated from God such that is described by the Lord, the Savior himself. Beloved, listen. It is a, an infinite tragedy to lose your soul over this. There's only two options. Either the cross of Christ where the wrath of God was poured out on the sinless son of God as a substitute for sinners. You don't have to be good enough. You can't be good enough. You don't have to offer a bribe. You have nothing to entice God with. You don't have to clean up by your own power the life that you have lived in habits of sin. You, you can't do that on your own power. But God has promised he will cover you with his righteousness. He will forgive all your sin. He will take away and remove your guilt and throw it as far as the east is from the west. And he will empower you to live for him. And he will secure you till, till he returns and throughout eternity. You don't have to grab your salvation. You can't get it on your own. You don't have to sustain it, hold it, or secure it. It is his work from start to finish. It's either that option or... And the cross is your only hope then. It's the only hope for any sinner. You reject that. You will face your creator. And all that will come back to haunt you in that one moment. 
Don't let that be you. The loss of a soul is infinitely tragic. Jesus said, what is a profit if you lose your soul, but you gain all this that's here? This is cheap, nothing, temporal. Bow with me for a moment.